Hello, and welcome to the Stockout. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. We're still in the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves. And of the roughly 20 uh, shows we have here at FreightWaves, the Stockout is the one that's focused on CPG, consumer packaged goods, and their supply chains. There's always seems like there's a lot to go over in that uh, industry, which is very important for the freight industry. They represent about 20% of all uh, freight transportation. And uh, you know, this week, I'll talk about uh, the JM Smucker Company. They reported earnings this morning, uh, pretty good results on balance, a lot of interesting commentary on uh, coffee, actually, and, and the, the coffee supply chains. And I thought it gave some uh, positive outlook, really, on, on um, margins and, and, and gross margins, which has really been an issue in the CPG industry. I think maybe that marks possibly a turning point um, in something that's been a drag on the CPG industry for, for some time. I'll also talk about the retail results last week. Uh, Walmart and Target both reported last week. Companies really kind of moving in opposite directions and um, really being impacted by you know opposing forces th- th- despite um, both having to, to navigate this, um, this, this macro backdrop with the high inflation. Um, and then I'll also give an update on the topic that I'm be- getting asked most frequently about, which, as you probably imagine, is the rail labor issues. Had uh, two big um, unions, the two biggest unions, re- reported their results. Uh, you know, earlier today, mixed results. I'll talk about what that means. So, uh, but first, a word from our sponsor, which is RJW Logistics Group. Uh, RJW owns and operates every step of the middle mile. As an asset-based integrated logistics company, they offer a full suite of retail supply chain solutions under one roof, including industry-leading retail consolidation that consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full month after month to many retailers. RJW's programs offer global suppliers control and transparency, helping them improve in-stocks, achieve retailer compliance, grow market share, and increase sales. Visit rjwgroup.com to optimize your supply chain today. So uh, big thanks to RGW Logistics Group. I've had them on a couple of different uh, shows here for the Stockout and would encourage you to go back and listen to those uh, shows. Um, had the CEO, Kevin Williamson, on to discuss how they work with uh, CPG companies. Uh, so with that, I'll go into today's first topic, which is a Smucker. James Smucker company reported, I thought they were pretty strong results, uh, all things considered. Um, some I'll run through some some financial stats. I'm not going to analyze this like a financial uh, analyst would who's covering the stocks. Plenty of people do that, but I'll try to go through you know with highlights for other relevant to other CPG companies. So they said comparable sales, excluding divestitures, up 11. percent You see, that's the stock price um, of Smucker Company. It's close to a five-year high there at a, a you know 147, up uh, you know 1.4 percent today. Uh, they did say comparable sales up 11 percent year over year. This increase was driven by a 17 percentage point increase in pricing uh, on a net basis, um, partially offset by 6% uh, decrease from volume and mix, primarily driven by the retail supply segment. So it sort of gives you a sense for the elasticity about uh, for every 1% percentage point increase, they're, they're increasing price. They, they get about 1% 1% um, decline in volume and, and mix. So still a reasonable um, you know, elasticity there. It is interesting that coffee is driving a lot of that uh, elasticity, and they did get, give a lot of good commentary around that. You know, they're the biggest, they're the biggest company in packaged coffee uh, for the retail channel. They own Folgers, Cafe Bustelo, they own the Dunkin' brands for at-home uh, consumption, and they said that um, the coffee prices up twenty-three percentage points 
you know, year over year, leading to a decrease in sales by 13%. So that's actually a higher elasticity on coffee, about a 0.5 versus their total company, which is about a 0.35. And that's kind of counterintuitive. You think of coffee as being something that's not terribly elastic, but I think uh, what they were talking about today was that they, um, you know, increased their price faster than you know, some of their competitors did. So in cases where there was a gap, where let's say their price was a little bit higher than the, the competition, you know, that, that gap widened, um, may have caused them to lose a little bit of sales uh, to certain to certain brands, maybe a mix shift from some of their higher end brands like Cafe Pucella to some of their more, um, you know, mainstream brands like, like a Folgers. Um, so interesting commentary there. Uh, also, there's a, been a decline in coffee, you know, sort of green coffee prices. Those have come down quite a lot in the last month, month and a half. And, um, you know, maybe that leads to a little bit less, you know, a pricing in, in the future. They, they talk about coffee as being kind of a pass-through uh, cost, but it does seem like when you sort of look at that and you think of, okay, you know, one, one of the trends I've been talking about in the stock out is elasticities have been low so far. They do seem to be increasing a little bit. And, you know, it's, it, it is interesting that, that coffee is one of the areas where they're seeing higher um, you know, elasticities that are at least higher than their their, their corporate average. Um, and it does show that the consumers are sensitive to those changes in price. It is a lot. It is one category where there are a lot of options. Um, they said for the full year, they actually increased their net sales guidance overall um, by about one and a half percent. They're now saying, excluding divestitures, they're expecting sales to be up about eight percent. And um, they're also talked about. Uh, gross margin, which I think is really sort of maybe the, the important thing. I mean, other than elasticity um, is, is really, are these companies going to, you know, be able to recover their gross margin, you know, versus what they've had you know, before the pandemic? I mean, most took a, a gross margin hit last year with the higher input costs, and then another took another gross margin hit this year uh, because of um, the inflation in their costs, you know, worked um, faster than the, the the prices they were able to pass through onto you know through the retail channel onto the con- consumer. I wonder if start some of that is starting to change. They did uh, in the Smucker company to talk about sequential margin improvement in their fourth quarter uh, from their from their third quarter. They said that you know if you would have excluded the GIF recall, uh, which was pretty impactful, that gross profit would have increased. Um, you know without that, so. Seems like maybe um, you know we're at uh, an area where now the prices on the shelves are are increasing just as fast, if not faster, than the um, the input costs. I mean, we have seen this on sort of the macro data where the CPI seems to be now rising faster than the than the PPI. The PPI is sort of pulled back. I think we're seeing that in uh, the consumer packaged goods space as well, which would lead to higher higher margins in the in the coming quarters. Smucker Company did have an interesting commentary on uh, supply chain, and it was really largely centered around the fruit spread segment, which is really sort of what you think of maybe first when you think of the Smucker Company, even though it's not its biggest uh, segment. Um, they said they reduced complexity and optimized SKU count by approximately, reduced by approximately 30%, and they're seeing um, positive flow back into the core offerings. And so the idea is, we've seen this with other CPG companies, Nestle in particular, they reduced the SKU count you know, cut the ones that aren't selling as well, that are sort of less profitable on an SKU basis with the intent that those um, sales will flow to their higher margin SKUs. And with some of the the larger companies that have sort of similar product offerings, it does seem to be working. We've seen that really throughout the the CPG space. 
um, this this trend of of eliminating SKUs. And they said, um, Smucker Company said dollars per total points of distribution up 43%. They said velocity in, increased. So I think that's a trend that we're going to see a lot more, you know, particularly from the larger, um, you know, CPG uh, companies. So, yeah, things generally going well at, at, at Smucker. Um, I'll move on to topic number two, which is Walmart becomes larger CPG destination. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about Walmart uh, results last week. I'll talk a little bit about Target's results last week. I'll talk a little bit about why Walmart uh, uh, seems to be performing a lot better than than, than Target. But basically, uh, you know, this is something I think CPGs want to know about. Uh, Walmart's about a 20% customer for a lot of the big CPGs. Most of the other, uh, most CPGs will say there's no other customer that's larger than 10, although that might change with this Kroger acquisition of Albertsons. And it really sort of drove home how important, you know, Walmart is when we had our conference in Northwest Arkansas in May, and you sort of go walk around the block and you see there, an office for just about every major, you know, CPG company that you can think of right there in Rogers, Arkansas. And um, so it's getting to be maybe a little bit more contentious relationship between the CPGs and some of the big retailers because the CPG companies have, have gone to them multiple times asking for price increases, pushback maybe getting a little bit more intense on the, on the retailer side. But I think, um, you know, Walmart and CPGs really sort of work together to, um, you know, improve uh, efficiency, sort of ultimately getting prices down. And Walmart's really making a lot of progress in the grocery space. They said grocery sales up 20% from two years ago. Um, you know, inflation might be close to, to, to that, but you know, they did say that about three quarters of that sales growth is coming from consumers making more than $100,000 a year. So it's, it's broadening who goes into the Walmart store. And a lot of customers would say, well, you know, I, you know, the, the day that I have to go to Walmart for groceries is really going to be a bad day, but it does seem like more higher income consumers are, are open to that. Uh, Walmart did say they've seen trading down in certain segments, including uh, protein, baking goods, baby food, and dog food. I would say that the dog food is maybe a new one for me. Um, that seems to have been a, an area that's really strong overall. Uh, trading down in protein, we've heard that from, from um, Tyson, where there's been you know, a shift from uh, you know, some of the you know, beef and pork toward, towards chicken. Uh, and then Walmart talked a little bit about its private sales. They said that those private label sales started to increase right around March after sort of a number of years of stagnation. They said those private label brands have increased 130 basis points since March, but not all consumers are trading down. Those higher income consumers that are now doing more of their grocery shopping at Walmart, they still prefer the national brand. So it is a situation where you sort of think about this from the perspective of some of these big CPG companies. It does seem like Walmart is going to be a bigger customer of theirs already from, let's say, the 20% level. Maybe they go into the, I don't know, low to mid-20s if, if they're 20% currently. So um, you know that being said, still big distinction with, with Walmart Target. Whenever you see you know, them you know, mentioned in the news, you have to sort of draw this distinction between what is being said about their general merchandise versus the consumables. General merchandise, um, basically things that, that, that are not consumables, inventory is still you know, elevated, you know, not as bad as they were, but, um, you know, that's where you're going to see that discounting. They did say that they don't expect any significant discounting in consumables. Um, so that's sort of bad news for the kind of the average consumer that's, that's focused in on that. Um, they also, they've expanded their, their last mile capabilities. Now have fulfillment that now reaches 84, 84% of us 
households. So I think they're going to do more, um, more, more online, um, even as you know, some of the big uh, online retailers you know, start to see declines in, in, in e-commerce. Um, you have a stock chart here that's going to show uh, Walmart and Target. So Walmart is in is in bla- is the black line. Target is the the blue line. And you see, kind of in the you know, this is a one year chart. You see, sort of for the the six months on the left side of that chart, you know, kind of trending together. Maybe Walmart's doing a little bit better than than Target, but not dramatically. And then you see right in the middle of that chart, both of them drop down. You know, that was the quarter where inventories were way too high, and and they all sort of pushed to you know reduce those inventories and sort of since then uh you know walmart has recovered most of that price drop and they're actually up in the last 12 months up four and a half percent whereas targets down 36 percent in the last 12 months so it's kind of you know peculiar peculiar on the um uh, surface why is walmart doing so much better than target well i think target is really much more weighted toward those general merchandise sort of discretionary categories and that really came across in their last um, you know, earnings released last week where they talked about um, sort of the mounting pressure on the consumer. And so this is, is really, I think, important for just, um, just consumer sentiment overall. So this is what, what Target said. They said comparable store sales up 2.8% in August, okay, year over year, up 4% in September, not bad. That decelerated, though, to up 0.9% in October. And they said the sales trend got worse not just from September to October, but throughout the month of October. And that lower sales trend has persisted into now November. And it is kind of um, concerning that you have sort of this downward sloping trend. I mean, some of the things we talk about on, and we talk about the macro economy here, freight waves, we've shown things like the uh, consumer credit card balances way above where they were before the pandemic uh, level. So, so consumers seem to have spent through most of what they saved by not traveling during the pandemic, and they're now dipping into savings uh, you know, beyond that. Uh, Target also said that inflation is crowding out not just discretionary purchases, but also things that they would um, you know, deem as essentials. Also, consumers are holding out for more, for more promotions and discounts than, than in years past. Now, they do seem claim to be gaining share across the board including uh, you know, groceries. So it almost seems like um, both Walmart and Target are gaining grocery share from the traditional grocers. You know, Really, one of the big differences uh, is that you can sort of get most everything at, at, at Walmart. You can only get sort of certain things at, at Target that sort of tops up your, your, your groceries and, and Target is more dependent on discretionary purchases, impulse purchases, things you don't really need. That's really what consumers are, are cutting back on um, dramatically, there was an interesting quote from, um, you know, on freight costs from Target. They said domestic transportation rates um, have come down since the beginning of the uh, since the domestic transportation rates have come down since the beginning of the year, but remain higher than they were on a year ago basis and roughly double 2019 levels. That's in addition to, of course, fuel costs also more than double 2019 levels. So they still think of of, of the transportation costs as being a headwind despite the fact that they've come down from the beginning of, of the year. So it's two retailers moving in a little bit opposite direction, really highlighting the pressure that the consumer is, is under. So with that, I just want to give another quick uh, shout out to RJW Logistics Group, who is sponsoring this show. Are you assessing the advantages of prepaid versus collect freight management for delivery into retail? RJW's retail consolidation program consistently achieves over 98% on time and in full. 
to ensure a strong shelf presence, increased in-stocks, retailer compliance, and overall retail supply chain improvement. Visit rjwgroup.com to speak with a retail logistics expert about the advantages of RJW's program and to make the best decisions for your business. So big uh, thanks to RGW Logistics Group. Um, we had one show where we really sort of dug into what CPG companies can do to achieve those higher, you know, in stocks, on full, have that retailer compliance. Um, you know, very important dealing with the retailers that we're talking about, sorry, I say Walmart in particular, um, has pretty strict, um, you know, rules for, for that. Um, so with that, go to the next uh, topic, which I really think is the biggest Maybe the biggest topic in freight right now, at least as far as what comes across, um, you know, my uh, inbox is, is for, for requests for information is, 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 a, is a rail, you know, labor, the rail labor situation. We do have an article that's up on the site now that my colleague Joanna Marsh uh, wrote. We go back and forth sharing um, information as, as, as we see it. Um, so basically what happened overnight, uh, um, because it was first thing this morning, um, you know, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen which is the union that uh, drives the train, the trade that drives the, tr- the train. They voted to accept, 53.5% voted to accept, so pretty narrow. Um, but the Smart TD, which is the train um, you know, conductors, so that would include the um, individuals who support the locomotive engineers in driving the train. They also do a lot of yard work. They voted narrowly to reject the tentative agreement, 50.87% of the members voted no. Um, there was also a vote from the, the smart yard masters, 65% voted to accept. They're, they're a smaller um, group, um, votes differently than the, the other part of the smart, um, which is conductors. So that's kind of a footnote. But really, you had the two, out of the two largest unions, one voting to accept, one voting to reject the tentative agreement. So this sets up, um, you know, potentially difficult, um, you know, December for the railroad industry, sort of where things stand right now. Eight unions have voted uh, yes for the tentative agreement for ratification, four have voted no, uh, including the largest union, which is that smart TD. And, um, you know, a lot of the ones that voted no before, you know, today's vote were some of the smaller unions. um, And this cooling off period for the smart TD is through December 8th. So, the soonest you could possibly have a legal strike would be December 9th. Um, most likely, some of those other unions believe that they had uh, their period through December 4th, but I think they're likely to push those out to December 9th also um, in solidarity with the Smart TD. So you have four uh, unions that haven't come to an agreement. I think if any one of them voted to strike, then the rest of the unions would not you know, come into to work in solidarity with the, the striking, you know, union. Um, I think they've been pretty clear on that. So um, you know, that's a possibility. I think maybe still the most likely thing is they'll go back to negotiating table. They'll come up with a tweaked agreement and that'll be voted on. That did happen with one of the unions uh, earlier. Um, so this has been something that, you know, that vote on the smart TD, I was wondering if it wasn't going to go that way because, um, I think the relations between that union in particular and the railroads has deteriorated. And part of the reason for that is the, um, the one man crew, uh, potential rule change where currently you need to have two men on a train, two individuals on a train, you have the locomotive engineer, you have the conductor. So the railroads want, um, at least at some point to move that to a one man crew where you just have the locomotive engineer on a train, you would take the conductors off the train, you would just have them do yard work. 
So that would re- eliminate, re- at least reduce the ranks of uh, conductors. So that's something that the union's sort of fighting, you know, would fight tooth and nail to, to not have. Actually, the FRA, Federal um, Railroad Administration, wants to have a rule where, you know, it mandates the, the two-man crew sort of in, in, in perpetuity. So that's something that's being sort of, uh, you know, contested in, in, the, in the railroad um, industry. And I think that's part of the reason why there's morale issues in addition to the precision scheduled railroading, the employees having to do more with fewer resources, the issues over sick days, uh, the, the, all, all of those issues, you know, with um, you know, not getting compensated as they feel like they should for travel expenses. Sort of all those rules have contributed to maybe a lack of morale in addition to the railroads feeling like they have not, to, you know, been compensated for any of the upside then that the, the railroad shareholders and management teams have, have really benefited from, you know, over the last however many years where those rail stock, railroad stocks have really been great stocks. Of course, they don't really share in any of the downside if, if the companies, you know, you know don't do well. Um, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting situation. Um, you know, it's been a, a situation where the railroads have had difficulty um, recruiting, retaining uh, the employees and, and really sort of getting them back to work after they were um, you know, furloughed or let go during the pandemic when the volumes come back. In previous cycles, they've always been able to get those employees back very easily. Didn't happen this time. Um, now they're all training you know, really a large number of employees, looking to get them in place, trained, and uh, hopefully um, you know, more, it'll make the network more resilient in um, you know, times of additional uh, you know, volume uh, growth. You know, one of the, the questions I get is is sort of what happens if there is a strike or even just a, a sort of a credible threat of strike in December and have a, a sonar chart that shows outbound domestic rail volume um, for containers, which I think shows uh, basically what happened in mid-September. And if we can get this chart on the screen, basically um, you see where, where that um, call out is, is pointing where you, you in, look at September, you know, the volumes drop in September for, for Labor Day. So these are using seven-day moving averages. So you, you know, the holidays, you, you do have a, dra- a drop. And then there was another deep drop in the middle of September. And that was just from the threat of possibly a, a strike. And so they basically dropped about 13% using a seven-day moving average. If you use sort of individual days, it's more like, it's more like 30% thereabouts. Um, so that was really because the, the the strike was potentially imminent within about 48 hours. Some of the railroads closed their terminals to in-gating. Uh, you know, Norfolk Southern called that out. And you've sort of seen, well, going forward, this really hasn't been a peak season like you typically have. You sort of look at the green line for 2020, the purple line for 2021, even the blue line for 2019. You tend to have uh, an increase in towards the end of November. That didn't happen this year. I want to show one other slide I think is interesting, which is outbound domestic volume, container volume for Atlanta, which is the last uh, chart that I have here. And Atlanta, you had a similar drop-off. And of course, Norfolk Southern is really big in Atlanta. They have two uh, intermodal terminals. And that one has still stayed depressed. I mean, it sort of had been tra- sort of trending in line with the previous years. You had a huge drop-off threat of the strike. And then it really hasn't you know, sort of fully, fully recovered. And I think what happened there also is that some of the shippers realized, well, you know, some of these lanes are short haul lanes, sort of maybe didn't sort of fully internalize how loose the truckload market um, is. And so 
in a lot of cases, the domestic intermodal in certain competitive lanes like Atlanta to Chicago is very competitive across modes. And so some of the domestic intermodal companies like Hub Group has talked about their um, you know, local East business being down you know, 18%, sort of 14 to 18% last couple quarters. And, and I think that lane uh, is, is a big part of it. So even if, even if there is a credible threat of a strike sort of next, early next month, uh, I think that could you know, cause some of this intermodal volume to go on the highway. I think shippers get nervous. They don't want to ingate their containers for them to get to, to sit in those terminals or worse, get, get robbed. Um, someone breaking into those those containers, so that's that's why um, I think they stop them from from ingating. So watching this very closely, um, and I know uh, we're going to keep you updated on FreightWaves.com for uh, any updates on the rail industry. Um, and would uh, if for anyone interested in CPG industry, want wants to hear more from me, encourage you to go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout to sign up for the stockout uh, newsletter. Try to get that out twice a week. And then this show goes live every Monday at two o'clock Eastern. Um, So with that, um, hope everyone has a great uh, Monday and a happy Thanksgiving.